Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 20 and can be found on page 13 in your bulletin. Please join me first in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. At about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, Each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree for me, with me, for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. When I woke up this morning, uh, my voice sounded about half as loud as it currently does. So um, I'm going to invite us to pray right now, um, and uh, we'll pray for my vocal cords. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that we get this opportunity now to hear from your word, and we pray that you give us ears to hear it. I invite you now to pray for yourself, that you would hear this word. Now pray for your neighbor. Now pray for me. In Jesus' name, amen. This is why I have tea. So, if you want to get to know somebody and their kind of inner life in a profound way, short of being friends with them for your entire life, oh, did I knock my... That's what happened. Okay. I think, Anton, you're good with me using this for now. Okay. So there's two ways to get to know somebody at a deep level of their inner life without getting to know them over the course of years and years and years. The one way is, I'll warn you, it's just really awkward, and it, it involves prolonged eye contact. So, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> be angry. 
to pay attention to what makes somebody angry. These are two ways to get a sense for the inner life of another human being. And they're both connected with seeing. Jesus tells this story, this parable, and it is all about seeing. It's about how God sees us and how we see others. And I'll just warn you, the message is a difficult one. It's not for nothing that I had a seminary professor tell me that this is the parable that everybody loves to hate. So just, that's what we're getting into today. So I want to ask the question, what is the offense of the kingdom? What is the offense of the kingdom? In order to look at that, we're going to do what I just talked about. We're going to look somebody in the eye. We're going to look at the eye of the master, and we're going to look at the eye of the worker. So we're going to pay attention to what these different people pay attention to. So first, the eye of the master. Let me just pause for tea. So just before this, in Matthew 19, the disciples have asked, uh, what is it that we will receive for having followed you? We've given up everything for you. And Jesus says, anybody who has given up brothers or family or houses or anything will receive in this life hundredfold and also eternal life. And so this is what disciples of Jesus can expect to receive. Just after this parable, James and John are going to ask, so, okay, a hundredfold plus eternal life sounds great, but what about, can we sit at your right hand or your left in the kingdom? So sandwiched in between these two is this story that Jesus tells. It's a story that applies to disciples who want to try to figure out where they stand. Who's, who's who? Who's important? Who's better? So Jesus tells the story, and it's about this master of a house, somebody who owns some land and who needs it farmed. And he goes out in the beginning of the day, and he hires workers. And then he goes out again three hours later, hires more workers. And again, three hours later, and three hours later. And finally, at five o'clock, one hour left in the day, he hires more workers. So he then pays them, and we just read the story, so we know what happens. But what do you think would be the record scratch moment for the first hearers of this parable? What is the moment when they hear Jesus tell the story and they go, wait, what? I'll tell you, it's not the moment when they all get paid the same. It's when the master goes out at 9 a.m. for more workers. Any self-respecting landowner would have hired enough workers at that first time. There's no reason for him to go out again. And then to go out again and again. And then, most ridiculously of all, 
in the last hour, he goes out again. This master is financially irresponsible at best and is making such strange business choices. In order for us to understand kind of what, what is such a big deal about this, we need to understand the context of first century day laborers. This is not, um, there's no social security net. There's no other way for these people to be provided for. They get what they get that day. And it's why in the Old Testament, God commands people, if you're gonna hire day laborers, pay them at the end of the day. Don't make them wait until the morning because that's what they have. That's all they have. And so these workers who weren't hired at first, they were looking at going hungry. They were looking at being in need, being desperate. So what is this master doing? He's looking for people. He's not concerned with the work of the vineyard as much as he's concerned with caring for people. The work matters, but the people matter more. And in verse 7, when we hear about these workers who are, at the end of the day, still standing there, this master asks, why are you standing here? And they say, no one hired us. We're tempted to think that they're lazy. That's not the case. There's only so much work. In an ordinary day, it'd be easy to be overlooked, to be the last pick, or to go home hungry. But this master goes out in that last hour to make sure there is no one who goes hungry. So, remember, this is a parable. It's not just a story about some really nice landowner. This is meant to point us to something about God. So what does it tell us? It tells us that God sees desperate people. And this is the way God sees desperate people. And this is the witness universally of the whole scripture. We get it in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis 16, when Abram is promised an heir, a son. But he's not patient. His wife's not patient. And so they decide to make it work, to farm Abram out to a slave, another woman. And by doing that, they not only dishonor Abram and his wife, but they also dishonor this person, Hagar. And she, is, she gets pregnant, and she's immediately cast out because Sarah is angry. And as she is on the run with, again, no social security net, no other people to care for her, she finds an angel of the Lord who cares for her, who feeds her, who provides for her and her new baby. And she is the first person, to my knowledge, who names the Lord in the Bible. And what does, he, what does she call him? The God who sees. So, God sees desperate people. He also sees 
people who don't amount to much. This is um, the witness of Deuteronomy 7, when Moses tells the people of Israel, God didn't choose you because you were so great. He didn't choose you because you're amazing. He chose you because you're not. So God sees desperate people, and it's good news, because that's all of us. In Romans 5, we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is the position that we're all in, in one sense or another. So God sees desperate people. He sees needy people. And if we're honest, that's us. And so let me just ask, do you feel seen by God? Sometimes, do you feel seen by God? Sometimes, sometimes no. But put yourself in the shoes of these last hour workers. You're the person at 5 p.m. who's looking at another day of hunger and you see over the horizon somebody walking towards you and they ask you a question, a gentle question. Why aren't you, why aren't you working somewhere? And you just tell them the honest truth, which is that you didn't get hired. And he says, come with me. So God sees desperate people. But Jesus shows us uh, not just something about God's um, inner life, because as we remember, when we look somebody in the eye, you get something for their inner life, something of their heart. So Jesus just showed us one, one little picture of God's heart. But then he also does something really uncomfortable. He turns the mirror, and he makes, it look, he makes us look at ourselves and ask, what do we pay attention to? Where's our heart? So now we've got to consider the eye of the worker. The eye of the worker. So at the moment when the workers are lined up and getting ready to be paid, uh, we're in verse 8, if you want to follow along. Um, what, is, what do the first hour workers see as they're waiting in line? They see, first of all, they're not first in line, despite being there from the beginning. They're not first in line. And moreover, these people at the front are getting paid what they promised. So one of two things is happening. Either this master actually like misspoke and the rate isn't one denarius a day, it's one denarius an hour, in which case, that's awesome. <laughs> or, and this is what's really happening, that denarius that goes to that last hour worker, that's mine. That should have been mine. So, they see these last hour workers getting paid their money. And then they do a couple of things. In verse 10, they, you know, it's, they assumed they would get more. So it started with the positive vision. Maybe, maybe I'm going to get paid at that. They grumble. They get that one coin in their hand. And they grumble. Which sounds a lot like the ancient Israelites in the desert, doesn't it? And then in verse 12, they complain. And they say, 
These last ones, these freeloaders, have only worked for you one hour. And we, who have borne the heat of the day, the scorching wind, which I won't get into it right now to say that's the same word that the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses in Jonah to talk about the east wind that goes. So like, we're getting a comparison to Jonah here. He's grumpy, he's not happy. But they also complained, and this is the thing, you have made them equal to us. You've made them equal to us, and they're not. Why do they act like this? The key is in verse 15. When the master asks them a question, do you begrudge my generosity? Now, our English translations do the best they can with that, but it's a hard thing to translate because if you do it literally, the question he asks is, is your eye evil because I am good? Which we hear that and we go, what does that mean? What is he talking about? But when we hear the word evil in respect to eyes, uh, we, should, we should think envy. That's what we're getting at here. It's envy. And so the master of the house is asking, are you envious because I'm good? Is that what's going on here? So they, these workers, have an envious heart that looks with evil intent on those later hour workers. It looks on them as if they stole their money and perhaps wishes that something bad would happen to them so they could have that money. So the evil eye is the motive for this, this complaint, this ill will. And it's ironic because they're envious about something that was already a gracious gift. They were there at 6 a.m. because they didn't have a job. Nobody was going to hire them unless this master hires them as great. So they've already received grace, but they don't see it as grace anymore. They see it as what they've earned. This is where it gets amazing. This is where it gets harder and better. In verse 13, how does the master respond? He replies to one of them. I just want to note, he's, he's replying to one of them. And in, in verse uh, 14, he points to one of the last hour workers. It's almost like he's pulling two of them aside and saying, listen, this is the deal. I chose to give to this one what I promised to give you. And he calls him friend. There's kindness in that. There's also a little bit of rebuke because the other time that somebody gets called friend in this, there's two times actually in the Gospel of Matthew. One is in the story of the wedding guests where one doesn't have a wedding garment and I still don't know what that means. So don't ask me about that. <laughs> but the other one, the other one is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when 
Judas comes, and Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. So there's a rebuke. Um, but it comes with kindness, too, an invitation. As the Apostle Paul says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's that kindness that opens the door for a change. So God sees desperate people. He also sees envious people. He sees envious people, and he doesn't rebuke them in a harsh way. He doesn't destroy them, but he is kind. So we see other examples of this in Scripture too. The, the idea, the, um, the approach that these first-hour workers have is very similar to the attitude of the older brother in Jesus' story of the two brothers. The older brother, you'll remember, is the brother who, as the father says, has always been with him. Everything I have is yours. He gets double the portion of the younger brother. And yet, he sees that it's a gracious gift, and he's envious because he thinks that should be mine. And he can't see that it's a gift given out of love. It's like the father meets this older brother with questions like, this your brother was dead, and now he's alive. Isn't it right that we celebrate this? Similarly, we already mentioned Jonah. When, when Jonah is angry that God is not choosing to judge Nineveh, but rather, uh, as it were, taking some of uh, Israel's mercy and giving it to the wrong people. He's angry. That mercy belongs to us. That's our stuff. And God asks a question, which I periodically just have to meditate on. Do you do well to be angry? Do you hear these questions? How gentle they are with how much love is present in them. So the, the author of these questions isn't coming in fury, ready to destroy. Uh, there's something we should note about envy. It tempts us to something that the 17th century Puritan, John Owen, calls hard thoughts about God. The kinds of thoughts that say, he doesn't really want what's good for me. The suffering that I'm going through, it's not actually for my good. It's just because God wants to punish me. That gift that somebody else has, God gave it to them so that I would be miserable. These are hard thoughts. And they're born of comparison, of envy. So some of us, uh, when we read this story, we want to identify with the master of the house. We want to identify with that kind master. But we're less inclined to be gracious to envious people. We, first of all, we put ourselves out of that circle. That might be a problem. 
But then we also think, if I was that master, I'd really show them. That's not how you act. I've, I would make them know. I'd, learn, I'd teach them a lesson. I almost said learn them a lesson. Others of us, we are that envious first worker. And we feel like we've done great things for God. We, we're owed things. Isn't that? And God comes to us in that moment. He says, isn't that? Isn't it right for me to give what I will with what's mine? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So when we look into the eye of the master and we consider the eye of the worker, here's what we see about the offense of the kingdom. You might like it, you might not. I told you, it's, it's hard. God sees the envious person, envious people, and he sees desperate people, needy people. And what does he do? He makes them equal. He makes them equal. And let's be honest, it doesn't feel fair. And we live in a culture that loves fairness. So it's not fair. And it's good news. Because if we're made equal, whether we're desperate or we're envious, we're both. That means that, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we have community together in and through Jesus. In and through Jesus, we actually can belong to one another. And we can actually learn to love each other. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And let me close with this. Um, actually, I should say this. I, I think it's important. Um, if you are one of those people, and I think, so here's the thing. I talk about you a lot. I'll just say that. Um, I talk about you a lot. And, I, and the thing I say every time is there are so many gifted people in this church. There's so many wonderful people. So many people who have done great things for God. And I really give thanks for that. I don't want this to be like a gotcha moment. I really, I love you. And I think that you're wonderful. And at the same time, it costs God no less to redeem you, wonderful people, than anybody else. That same one denarius, that same price of Christ's blood, purchased wonderful people and people whose lives are a mess. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? But let's close up. My life's a mess, right? Maybe you do too. But let's close with this. The Apostle Paul was your, your stereotypical first-hour worker. He did everything right. He was there at 6 a.m. He had his work belt. He was ready to go. And he boasted about that. And then the Lord Jesus, in that same gentleness and kindness, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he gets knocked off his horse. And he gets blinded to all his greatness. And he gets shown the way of suffering. And eventually we get to a point where he's writing in 1 Corinthians 4. 
And he's talking about that last line of that parable when Jesus says, so the first will be last and the last will be first. And he's saying, God has put me last. And his response is not, so I'm angry about it, but isn't that great? I am last for the glory of Christ. And so, may those of us who in this life get to be first anticipate being last and to do so with joy because it means that all the people who were last, we get to see them shine and be first. And it's good news. And all together, we get to enjoy the beauty and the glory of the kingdom. And this is all a gift of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you see people differently than we do. We give you thanks that you are kind uh, at moments when we are not inclined to be. That you show mercy to people who think they're really great and to people who know that they aren't. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the offense of the kingdom as good news, as reason to deepen our love for you and to trust in you, to sing in response in Jesus' name. Amen.